0: Esther chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off the signet ring, his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king falling at his feet and weeping she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king she said and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman sent of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Sorry, that Haman's son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province, and made known to the people of every nationality, so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves of their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Suda. Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is the word of the Lord. Taylor, are you doing youth church this morning? If you would like to go out with Taylor... uh, That's for kind of anyone in grades five and up in high school. uh, You are welcome to. You're going to consider uh, these words as well. But for the rest of us, you get me. Lucky you. Now, who doesn't love a good turnaround story? I still remember as a kid, face glued to the TV watching as the mighty, mighty Wollongong Wolves came back from 3-0 down at halftime to win the National Soccer League Grand Final on a penalty shootout. What a turnaround! I still remember as an adult, jumping around my lounge room as the North Queensland Cowboys scored a try after the final siren to leave uh, sorry, to level the scores against Brisbane in 2015 setting the game up for that exhilarating golden point finish. And I didn't even go for the Cowboys. I just remember that. It was so good. What a turnaround. And it's not just on the sports field that sees fantastic turnaround stories, is it? Who doesn't love, that? that doesn't sound right. Who doesn't love seeing low-income battlers like J.K. Rowling? who came up with the idea of the story of a boy wizard while sitting on a train and soon after became one of the most successful authors of all time. But we love hearing stories of the poor being made rich, the low being raised up, the losers becoming winners, the nobodies becoming somebodies. And it's part of what makes this story of Esther such a good one to read. It's a turnaround story, and we love a turnaround story. We began this story with the entire nation of Jewish people facing genocide. And we end with the Jews claiming victory over their enemies. With a Jewish queen and a Jewish second in command of the biggest empire in the world. But friends, there is one thing better than reading a story of a seismic reversal. There is one thing better than witnessing a great turnaround. And that's living one. And the story of Esther actually points us towards a better turnaround story, a more impressive story. And brothers and sisters, it's your story. The way that God works in Esther helps us to see and to understand and to appreciate the way that God has worked in our own lives through the work of his son at the cross. And so we're going to see, uh, spend some time this morning considering how Jesus turns our lives around. But before we do that, I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us understand and put into practice what he would have us hear this morning. So let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you and thank you again. We thank you for giving us your life-giving word. And we ask that as we read it now, as you speak to us, that you would not just grow us in knowledge, but that you would grow us in relationship with you. We pray that we would leave here this morning with a renewed appreciation of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray that we would go out loving you more, trusting you more, with a renewed determination to live for you more. We ask that by your spirit you would do that in us now. For the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, if you're just tuning in to the story of the book of Esther, well, Esther's the story of how God works behind the scenes in a long chain of both ordinary and extraordinary events to save his people from a plot to wipe them off the face of the earth. And in this story, we've seen already how God uses all things... ...for the good of his people. He uses the drunken antics of the king of Persia. He uses the courage of the king's wife. He uses the physical appearance of a Jewish orphan girl. He uses a plot to assassinate that king. He uses a Jewish man who just happened to be in the right place at the right time... ...and overheard that plot. He uses the egoism of the king's second in command... He uses the advice of Haman's family and friends. He uses the king's inability to sleep one night. He uses all those things. Arranged in perfect order, with perfect timing. And he uses them all to work out the good of the people that he promised to love and protect when he made a covenant with their ancestors. That's what the story of Esther is all about. And where we left off last week... Sorry. The, where we left off last week, the plot line of the book of Esther has started to wind down. You remember I talked last week about how there was the, the high point, the point of reversal, and then everything starts to wind down in the end. Last week we saw how Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had been exposed... And defeated. But there's still one problem, and it's a big problem. The problem is that the king's word cannot be revoked. And under the influence of Haman, the king had set a date where all Jewish people were to be killed. And even though Haman's gone, that edict still stands. God's people are facing destruction, they're facing annihilation. They're facing their goods being plundered. They're facing the end of the Jewish nation. That date is fast approaching. And so in chapter 8, again, Esther pleads to the king for mercy. And in verse 8 of chapter 8, the king gives Esther permission to issue another decree to counteract the first one. And so, in effect, what we get is a mirror image of the edict that Haman issued back in chapter 3. You remember back in chapter 3, Haman convinces the king that it's in his interest to kill all the Jews. The king did not know that he was married to one. But so, in chapter 3, Haman issued a decree to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews and to plunder their property. And so, in chapter 8, under Mordecai's influence, a new decree is issued giving the Jews permission to destroy, kill, and annihilate anyone who might attack them and to plunder their goods. Just as Haman's decree was written down by the royal secretaries and sent out to every one of the 127 provinces in their own language, so was Mordecai's. Just as Haman sealed his decree with the king's signet ring, so did Mordecai. Just as Haman's decree went out on the king's super speedy horses, so did Mordecai's. And so in chapter 3, hearing the Haman's decree, the city of Susa is bewildered. In chapter 8, the city rejoices. When Mordecai hears Haman's decree earlier in the book, he goes out into the city wearing sackcloth and ashes. Now it's reversed. In chapter 8, Mordecai hears this new decree and he goes out into the city. What's he wearing? Royal garments. A golden crown. A purple robe. In chapter 4, the Jews hear the decree and there is mourning, there is fasting, there is weeping and wailing. In chapter 8, they hear the decree and there is joy and gladness, feasting and celebrating. Do you see? It's, it's a complete turnaround. Everything changes for God's people. Everything is reversed. God's people are saved. The decree to destroy them is counteracted. Haman is defeated. The Jews are allowed to defend themselves against anyone who might try to carry out Haman's genocide. And they all lived happily ever after. That's the story we want, right? That's the story we can all enjoy. That's the kind of ending we like reading about. You can put that story in the book of great turnarounds right alongside the Wollongong Wolves of the year 2000. But there's a problem here. That's not how the story ends. It's how we want the story to end. We want it just to end happily ever after, but it's not how it actually ends. Let's have a look at how the story actually ends in chapter 9. I'm going to pick up from chapter uh, 9, verse the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword killing and destroying them and they did what they pleased to those who hated them In the citadel of Suda the Jews Susa the kills the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men They also killed Pashandatha Dalphon Asphatha, Paratha, Adala, and Datha, Pemashatha, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha. I'm sure that's how you say them. The ten sons of Haman, son of Hanadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they impaled the ten sons of Haman The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews that were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. We would like the story of Esther to end with Haman's decree just sort of being abolished and everyone living happily ever after. That's the kind of story that we like to read. But the story actually ends with the Jews killing and destroying their enemies. It actually ends with the Jews doing what they pleased to those who hated them. The story actually ends with 500 men killed in the city of Susa, including 10 who were impaled on poles. The story actually ends with the death of 75,000 men across the empire. And just when you thought this brutal bloodbath would finally end, in verse 13 we read about the Jewish Queen Esther asking for another day of killing. It seems 500 dead Persians wasn't enough for Esther. She wanted more. How do you feel about this ending to the story? Because you'd be forgiven for finding the ending of this story a bit difficult to read. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's not a passage you'd pick up and read with your non-Christian friend, I don't imagine. Modern readers cringe at stories like this in the Bible. I mean, it's one thing to defend yourself, but it's quite another thing to attack back. Doesn't Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Doesn't he teach us to turn the other cheek? What place does a story like this have in the word of a holy and loving God? Well, friends, the answer to that question is an important one. What place does this story have? An important one. Because this story is in the Bible for a reason, and it's here to teach us a really important lesson about our God. I've said throughout this series that in Esther, God. works through all things to achieve his purposes. He works through people's obedience and people's disobedience. He works through people's wise decisions and foolish decisions. He works in ordinary ways and extraordinary ways. He works in all things to achieve his purposes. And the uncomfortable reality at the end of the book of Esther is that the killing of 75,000 men in the Persian Empire is one of those things that God used to achieve his purposes. So the question is, what is God doing here? I didn't want to do that. There's a few things we need to see about the response of God's people in Esther chapter 9. First, we need to see that the Jews only killed those who attacked them. The king's edict only gave them permission to arm themselves and fight against people that attacked them first. This is not the story of the Jews going out and hunting down 75,000 people in cold blood. This is the story of 75,000 people who are determined to commit genocide against God's people. Second, we need to see that the Jews did not take the plunder, which seems like an odd detail, but the author says three times They did not lay their hands on the plunder. The decree that was sent out by the king invited the Jews to not only kill their enemies, but to take their stuff. But three times in chapter 9, in verse 10, in verse 15, and in verse 16, the author informs us that the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. They could have, they were allowed to, but they didn't they restrained themselves. And the question is, why? They were given legal permission to seize the money, possessions, property and weapons of anyone that attacked them. And when 75,000 people attacked them, they could have left this day very wealthy. But they didn't do that, and here's why. The Jews were not killing for their own benefit. If this was a military coup, if the Jews were trying to seize control of the empire, if it was ethnic cleansing, if it was revenge, if it was any of those things, the Jews would have helped themselves to the plunder. Money and property would have been exactly what they were after. But the Jews are not killing for their own benefit. Do you know what they're doing? They're bringing God's justice to bear. You see, the reason that the story of Esther ends with the killing of tens of thousands of people is because the story of Esther not only shows us the way that God deals with his own people, but it also shows us the terrifying ways in which God deals with those who refuse to be his people. Esther 9 shows us what happens when people oppose God. You see, these 75,000 people that are attacking God's people are attacking God. And what happens when you oppose God? It's not good. It's death. And Esther isn't the only place where God uses his own people to dish out his judgment on sinful, rebellious people. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that he will use his descendants to punish the sin of the Amorites. In Deuteronomy 9, God tells his people who are about to enter the promised land, he tells them that the reason he is giving them this land is nothing to do with how good they are. He says, the reason I am giving you this land is so that I can punish the wickedness of the people who are currently living there. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, God uses his people as instruments of his judgment on sin. Now, you and I look at this story and it makes us uncomfortable. We're offended at the idea of a God who uses his people to punish others. We think it's barbaric. We think it's too harsh. I mean, Australia got rid of the death penalty 40 years ago. Why hasn't God? You and I are uncomfortable with a God who punishes sin with the sword. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. But friends, the thing that we need to understand is that the problem is not the punishment. Now, the problem lies in how we think about the crime. If I were to ask you what sin you committed this week, the first thing you'll do is chuckle and say, me? No, I didn't sin. But you did. We all did. And if I were to ask you how you sinned this week, I suspect most of you would think of something Think about it in your head, think of something, that, a way that you sinned this week. Maybe you got angry, maybe you were greedy, maybe you lied, maybe you stole. Maybe you said nasty things about someone, maybe you thought lustful things about someone. You can think of something that you did this week that was sinful, can't you? But friends, none of those things even come close to the worst thing you did this week. Those things are the things that you notice at a surface level, aren't they? But friends, deep within your heart, you did something far, far worse. You offended against the infinite holy God who created you. And you did that every moment in which you treated him as anything less than the source and the motivation and your highest goal in life. You see, we only ever think of sin as breaking rules, as doing you know, naughty things, indulging ourselves. But friends, the Bible's view of sin is not rule-breaking, it's relationship-breaking. It's attacking the God who made you. The Bible's view of sin is opposition to God's rule and friends, we are all guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. And friends, the wages, the, the punishment of opposing the God who gives you life is death. The disturbing reality of the book of Esther is that the 000, what the 75,000 people got in Esther 9 is exactly what we deserve. God's pure, perfect wrath against sin. But, do you know what? All of that, God's punishment of sin, the terrible punishment against sin, all of that only serves for us to deepen our appreciation of the great reversal that God offers you and me. Because friends, the God of the book of Esther, the God who enabled his people to destroy their enemies with the sword because of their sin. The God who punishes your sin and my sin with death is the same God who offered himself up to death on the cross for your sin. We mustn't forget that when we cringe at the idea of a God who sentences people to death, when we feel uncomfortable about a God who punishes, we need to remember that the God who punishes sin with death is the same God who took that punishment upon himself for our sake. Brenda, you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. That was the only possible solution. But friend, you are so loved that Jesus chose to die for you. He was glad to die for you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He did that to turn your life around. Because friends, just as God did in the time of Esther, he has offered you a great reversal. Just like the Jewish people then, we too are facing death. But not just a physical death, an eternal death. The irrevocable decree of death hangs over us all. We have all offended against the infinite holy God who created us. We've all opposed him. But just like he did in the time of Esther, God worked through a series of perfectly timed events to bring about a great deliverance. While the decree of death still stood, Jesus entered our world to die for his enemies. But he doesn't just spare you death, no, he changes you. He changes everything about you. He takes you while you were lost and he finds you and he guides you. He takes you while you were living aimless lives and he gives you meaning and purpose. He takes you while you were hopeless and he gives you a certain hope to live for. He takes you while you were held captive by sin, unable to escape and he gives you true freedom. He takes you while you're living in fear and he gives you the comfort that you have nothing to fear he takes you while you were living for yourself and getting no joy from that and he offers you a life of selfless love he takes you while you were alone and he gives you belonging he welcomes you into his family friends jesus offers you a complete turnaround a new life and so that just leaves two responses two questions First of all, have you experienced this turnaround in your life? Have you accepted it? Friends, if you're here and you haven't yet accepted the offer of Jesus' forgiveness, know that that will turn your life around. Have you accepted it? If you have accepted it, do you see the effects of that? Do you... Are you living a new life? Are you finding that you are living with a new meaning, a new purpose, a new hope? Or is it just the same life you were living before, but with something different to do on a Sunday morning? Have you experienced the turnaround? Secondly, if you have experienced, what do you do? You do what the people of God did in Esther. When the decree of death was overturned, when the counter decree was issued, what did God's people do? They celebrated. Even before the day had arrived where they would be finally delivered, they celebrated, they rejoiced. Afterwards, they said it in the calendar. They wanted to remind themselves every year of what God had done to save them. They wanted to make sure that they never lost sight of the fact that God had acted to save them. And so, friends, what do we do? As those who have been delivered by God, we celebrate, we remember, we make sure that we will never lose sight of the fact that even though we were facing death, even though we were under that righteous decree of death, we were facing God's judgment against sin, Jesus came and he offered you a great reversal. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that just as you did in the time of Esther, that you have offered to turn our lives around. We praise you that while we were still your enemies, while your righteous judgment against sin, the decree of death hung over us, that while we were facing eternal separation from you, that you sent your son to redeem us to deliver us, to reverse the decree of death and to offer us life. Lord, we thank you for that and we ask that you would help us to live new lives today and every day. We pray that you would help us put sin to death, that you would help us live wholeheartedly for you. We ask this for our good we ask this because it brings you glory. And we ask it in the name of our great Saviour, Jesus. Amen.